I want to ask you a question. What does freedom really look like? Like, what does it look like for someone to truly be free? I think all of us at some point have this picture in our minds of what it looks like to be free. And thankfully, you know, for, for most of us, we haven't grown up in a, a place or society or culture or a time when we didn't know what freedom felt like. I mean, thankfully for most of us here or tuning in online who live in America, we've lived in a free world. But still, what does it look like to be free? So I think a lot of us have this picture in our minds. And maybe it's the place that we go when we get stressed or we get anxious or we feel trapped or we feel like things around us are not going well. Or maybe we feel like, like we're even have people in our lives like holding us down and we just dream about that place we want to go. My daughter, Emma, she's only 10 years old, but she's already talking about like how she can't wait till she gets to college because then she'll be free to be able to go do the things that she wants to do. And I think for you and I, growing up in 21st century America, living in the West, we have this picture of what it looks like to, to be free. It's almost like the American dream, right? It's like this picture you get in your mind, like when things get hard, that place you escape to. So where is your place? Like when things are going really badly or things are really difficult, where's that place you escape to in your mind? See, for, for some of you, you might escape to that cabin in the mountains where there's no HOA fees and there's nobody around you to knock on your door and try to sell you solar. Or, or maybe it, it's you, you're, you're, in a, you're in a truck and you're pulling a camper and you're going off to some national park, some place where you can just get away. You can just be free. Maybe for like me, it's the beach sitting out looking at the surf, just dreaming about what it looks like in Australia on the other side. But I think for all of us, we have that place we go when we need to be free. But here, here's one of the things that I think we're going to see today as we begin a new series in the book of Exodus. We're going to see that God's picture of true freedom is very different than ours. And God is going to challenge us through the book of Exodus of where we look and where we go to truly find freedom. If you've been with us the past few months, we've been working our way through what we're calling the greater story, which is the story that God is telling us from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22. And God is interweaving this beautiful picture of how God promises to fix what has been broken by sin, rescue, and redeem his people. And we get to the book of Exodus, and we see that that. God's chosen family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, are now living in Egypt. And there were 70 people strong when they moved to Egypt. And now we fast forward 400 years later, and things have changed. Th things are very different now, 400 years later. And we see that, that the family has grown. And in Exodus chapter 1, we see that the, the people of Israel have, have, for these past 400 years, continued to grow and be fruitful and multiply. But along that way, things changed for the people of Israel. Things changed for this family because a new Pharaoh rose to power. And we read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So we see this new, this new Pharaoh, he felt threatened by Israel. 
He felt threatened by their size. Many commentators think that Israel moved, uh, that this family of Jacob and Joseph moved to Egypt, and they had about 70 people. And by 400 years later, they're somewhere between 600,000 and a million in size. And at that point in time, Egypt was, wasn't that big of a nation. And so they felt threatened by the size of, of Israel. And so what they decided to do was to take away their freedom. Notice what happens. Notice what we see here in verse 11 of Exodus. It says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, uh, Python and Ramses, in verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Notice that. They made them work as slaves. They, they put them into bondage. And now the people who were free and they moved to Egypt, now they're living as slaves in a foreign land. And it says in verse 13, and it made their lives bitter with, verse 14, and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So I think we see here that few things rob people of their freedom than oppression, especially legalized oppression, working as slaves. And so now these Israel, these people of Israel were free and now they're slaves in Egypt. And we, we see really quickly that they are in bondage in a terrible place. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about when this took place. Uh, many biblical scholars think that uh, the Exodus, this, 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 this situation with Israel in Egypt happened about 5th century B.C. And that, that would have been, really lined up with this, the, the belief that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible about 3,500 years ago. They actually found a tomb in the modern city of Luxor, which is the ancient Egyptian city of Thebes. And in this tomb, they found a, uh, some hieroglyphics with pictures of slaves making bricks. And well, I think uh, many biblical scholars look at this and see that this is one of the archaeological evidences of the Israelites, the Hebrews, being in Egypt at this time, being told to work to make these storehouses for Pharaoh. So we find a really ugly situation. The people of Israel, they're enslaved. They don't feel free at all. They're in a really difficult place. But I want you to see that even in the midst of this, God was moving. Notice this. Notice verse 12. Remember, they're forced to serve in Egypt. Their lives are made bitter, hard service. But notice verse 12. It says this, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Notice that. Every time Pharaoh did something, he, he didn't like them. He wanted to, to, to um, tighten the screws on them, so he made them slaves, and they continued to grow. They continued to have babies. God continued to bless them. And you're going to see this throughout the entire story with Egypt and Israel, that every time Pharaoh does something to hold God's people down, God's people multiply and grow. And I think there's a principle for us here. And the principle is this, that when affliction and opposition come, God's People flourish. And we see this throughout the ages. You don't have to look very far back to see that it's during times of affliction and opposition against God's people that God's people grow and they flourish. I think one of the examples of this is modern is the number of Christians in modern China. If you're familiar with um, the, 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 the reign of Mao in China, in the, in the late 1960s, they decided that they were going to make all religious activity in China illegal. 
And so they started arresting Christians. They started, they started arresting Christians. They started um, bulldozing churches. It was really an ugly situation. But here's what's amazing. In 1949, it's estimated that there were, um, as far as the number of Christians in China, in 1949, it's estimated that there were about a million about a million evangelical Christians in China in 1949. But today, following that religious persecution, and religious persecution hasn't ended in China. It's still going on today. But following that, today, they think there's between 100 and 120 million Christians in China. Through opposition and persecution, God's people flourish, and they, they, even in hard times, they, they multiply. Think about Iran. The, the Middle Eastern country of Iran, one of the most difficult places to, to be a Christian, to take the gospel to. 20 years ago in Iran, it was estimated that there were between five and 10,000 Christians, tw- two decades ago. Today, as of 2021, they estimate that there are a million, 800,000 to a million Christians in Iran. God moves when his people are oppressed. And we see that beginning, all, that truth beginning all the way back here in the book of Exodus. And it's a reminder that even when the most powerful human institutions try to hold God's people down, they can't because God is bigger and God is in control. But that doesn't stop Pharaoh. In this story here in Egypt, that doesn't stop Pharaoh. I want you to notice, Pharaoh realizes that making his, that, that putting the Israelites as slaves doesn't work. So he moves to a terrible tactic of genocide. Notice first. 15. It says this, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, you shall live. Notice that there's just this evil at play here in Egypt. That they're saying, well, we can't stop the Israelites from thriving because we made them slaves. So instead, we're going to kill their baby boys. We're going to hurt their baby boys and let the daughters live. And I want you to notice something, that that Pharaoh just didn't get to this place, that Pharaoh just didn't wake up one day and say, well, hey, I'm going to to do genocide and and kill these babies. That it it started in the back halls of of the the, Pharaoh's office, where he starts to to do some, some discussions, where he starts to kind of spread this fear that, these Israelites are too big and too strong, and now they're the ones who are going to take all the good jobs and the good houses and, and all of these things. And we begin to see a political shrewdness take place. And that political shrewdness leads them to a place where not only do they enslave the Israelites, but they start to do genocide against them. And I would guess that those discussions that took, back in the, took place in the back hallways in, in, in Egypt were probably the same discussions It happened in the late 1930s with Hitler against the Jewish people. The same discussions that took place in the 1960s with Mao and China against uh, Christians. It never starts with physical violence. It always starts with fear. And it works its way towards oppression and violence. And that's exactly what we're seeing right here in this situation in Exodus chapter 1. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice this. Pharaoh tells these midwives, take these baby boys and take their lives. But I want you to see what the midwives do. The midwives, they respond and they actually say no. Look at verse 17. It says this, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Now, I love these midwives. 
it's a reminder that God uses the powerless things to defeat the powerful people. I mean, here's Pharaoh. He's the most powerful man in the world at the time. And there's these, these midwives. And these were, these were uh, women that had helped, um, raise, helped born and raise these um, Israelite babies. And they feared God, and they say no to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh later comes to them. He's like, hey, what's going on? I told you to do this. And they tell Pharaoh that, uh, that actually the Hebrew women are so strong that they have the babies before they can even get to them. And we're not sure if they're telling the truth there or not. Uh, but we think what, what we're seeing here is they're, telling, they're, they're moving and following what God wants, not what Pharaoh wants. See, Pharaoh, this Egyptian king, gives them this wicked command. Yet these women honor God. And they say no to Pharaoh. And I think it's a reminder that sometimes in life, we have to make a really hard choice. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about honoring the government. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul writes and says that we need to honor the officials that are placed above us because government was God's idea. But yet here, we see that these women are commanded to do something evil. They're commanded to take life. And they end up saying, no, we're going to follow God's way in the end. And it's just this idea, did, did they lie? Did they, did they deceive Pharaoh? Did they disobey Pharaoh? They did, but they did it so they could follow God because they wanted to care for life. And I think it's a reality to us that sometimes that we're going to face opposition. Sometimes we're going to have to make decisions, make clear decisions to follow what God tells us to do. And, and even if um, somebody in authority is telling us to do something that is evil, we have to follow what God tells us to do and be ready to take our lumps for it. And I think these, he, these, these midwives, they were ready. No matter what Pharaoh said, they were ready. They followed God. But when you notice something, we see that God blessed these midwives. That, that God dealt, Verse 20, that God dealt well with the midwives. The people multiplied and grew every time. Pharaoh tries to hold them down, they grow. And notice this in verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So we see that God blessed these midwives for following him and not the wicked, evil commands of an evil king. So we, we see a lot going on in these verses in Exodus chapter 1. But what we see is that, that although bad things are happening, the circumstances are difficult, God is still in control every single time. But I want you to notice something. I want you to realize and, and notice something. These midwives, they, they reveal a truth to us that no matter your role, you matter to God. These midwives, they could have felt like they were just nobodies in God's story. But it's through these midwives that God uses them to defy the wickedness of the king. And we'll see next week, it's through these midwives' decision that Moses gets born, the one that God's going to raise up and, re- and, and re- rescue God's people out of Egypt. Your role matters, whatever your role is. Big, small, you might feel like it's indifferent, like what you do doesn't really matter, but it does. God has a purpose for every single one of us in our lives. And I think when we realize this, when we realize that our role matters and God wants to use us, there's freedom here. There's freedom found in what God has for us. I want you to notice something. As you get to the end of the chapter, of chapter 1 of, of Exodus, we see that Pharaoh's plan doesn't work. He made them slaves. It didn't work. They continued to grow. He had a plan for genocide, and they continued to grow. But we see now he issues an all-out decree. Notice this, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. At this point, Pharaoh legalizes genocide of the Hebrew people and says, if you see a boy, throw him in the Nile. It's complete evil. But Pharaoh's plan, God uses his plan 
It backfires against Pharaoh. And it's through this situation that Moses is thrown into the Nile and rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. And we'll see that next week. It's a reminder that God is moving in our circumstances. And God is bigger than our suffering and our oppression. And so each, these Israelites in Egypt, they feel, they've got to feel the pressure. They've got to feel like they're just trapped. But I want you to notice something. In the midst of this slavery and oppression and legal genocide, we see God, it's this backdrop that God uses to, to institute his rescue plan for his people. And he begins to start in motion a plan that's going to rescue not just his people from slavery, but he's going to rescue his people out of Egypt, out of their sin, and into his presence. And so for, for, for the next few minutes, I want to just point out two truths, I think, here in this text that I think can impact each of our lives if we take them to heart. Two things we see here in Exodus chapter 1 that I think have the power to teach us about what true freedom looks like. And the first one is this. If you're taking notes, true freedom is only found when we serve and worship the right thing. Like, true freedom can only be found when our hearts serve and worship the right things. Look back with me, if you would, to verse 13. All the way back, early in the chapter, we see this. So the, the Hebrew people are they're put in, they're put, you know, they're enslaved, they got taskmasters over them, they're building these, these store cities. Now, this isn't the pyramids and the Sphinx. We scholars think that those had been built already, that these are store cities, the city of Ramses. So they're building these store cities, and all of a sudden we see, we see verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the, the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives what? Bitter. They, might, they made their lives bitter with what? Hard service. So they made their lives bitter with service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ultimately made them work as slaves. And so the, these Israelites, I mean, of course they're bitter, because they're forced to serve Egypt. But here's what I want you to notice. I think there's this major truth for us here that I want us to see. In life, everything, and I mean everything, is trying to get you to serve it. Everything that we deal with on a weekly basis is trying to lead us to a place where we serve it rather than it serving us. I mean, let's just be honest. Think about work. Right? Think about your finances. Think about um, social media and politics and news and stuff. It's all trying to get us to a place where we serve it, isn't it? I mean, isn't it trying to get us to a place where, where we're looking to that thing as that ultimate thing? This is where we're living for. We're working so we can pay for things that we want to do on the, on the weekends. I mean, this is this idea that everything is trying to capture us, to get us to fall into servitude. And everything is trying to get our heart's attention because it wants us to worship it. I mean, man, the news, advertisements, I mean, everything you see is trying to drive you to this place where you're like, that's what I need, this is what I need to do, this is what's going to make my life better, and it's all leading us to this end. But God wants us to see that true freedom is only found when we worship the right thing, when we serve the right things. How many of you remember the old movie, The Ten Commandments? 1956, if you were under, like, 36, there's no way you've seen it, right? Like, just no way. Unless your mom and dad, like, made you sit down and watch you when you were, like, eight. <laughs> a couple of you. You guys are outliers. But everybody else. But if you remember the movie, there's a really good-looking dude named Charlton Heston who played Moses, right? 
And you're like, man, if Moses looked that, some of you ladies are like, if Moses looked like that, I mean, he didn't need to wait till he was 80 to get married, you know, seriously. So anyways, I don't think he was 80. But so there's this scene in this movie, right, where God call, raises up Moses, and, and Moses marches right in to talk to Pharaoh. And it's just great. You should look it up on YouTube. It's great. He walks in with his staff, and he puts the staff down, and he does this one leg up thing, right, like... Uh, like Captain Morgan, you know, if you guys know what I'm talking about. So he does this Captain Morgan thing, and he looks at Pharaoh, and he says, Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, let my people go. It's this great scene, right? Let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no, they're, they're my slaves. And it's just like this really, like, dynamic moment. And you get to see that God's setting up for this move he's going to make to rescue his people. But here's what's interesting. And this, you know, doesn't surprise you, but Hollywood kind of missed what God had told Moses actually to say. I want you to see, this is what Moses actually said. Chapter 8, verse 20. Moses walks in. I'm sure he still did the leg up thing, though, right? Leg up, staff down. He says, thus says the Lord, let my people go. Why? That they may serve me. It's different. You notice that? It's different. See, let my people go. Do what? Well, let them go to the beach, right? You know, let them go see the sand dunes. Let, let them go just do whatever they want. Let them go watch as much, keeping up the Kardashians as they can. No, no, no. Let them go so that they can what? Serve me. God is telling us something. You guys can't miss this. God is telling us something here. So the truth is that when you serve anything more than you serve God, it will always produce bitterness. The, the, the Israelites were bitter because they were forced to serve Egypt. And the same goes for you and me. In our lives, if we serve anything more than we serve God, if we worship anything more than we worship God, it's going to lead us to a place where we are bitter. So God is saying that real freedom isn't serving no master at all. Real freedom comes from serving the right master. And if you're here today, and it's been a long time since you've been in church, are you tuning in online today and you, uh, maybe, maybe this is the first time you're, you're, you're walking through this idea of freedom? You might say, well, that makes no sense at all because that's backwards. Like why would freedom come from serving something rather than not serving something at all? That makes no sense. And I think in a 21st century mindset, we understand that because our view of freedom is, again, the cabin, it's the RV, it's the beach, it's somebody not telling us what we need to do. But what God is saying is, that actually will never lead you to freedom. Instead, that's going to lead, lead you to a place where you're always feeling bitter. That bitterness is always at your doorstep. And here's why. Because when God made us, when God created you and he created me, he created us with hearts that want to worship. Before Adam and Eve fell, before sin entered the world and broke everything, we were created to, to worship God, to walk in the design God made us of intimacy and relationship with our Heavenly Father, and that leads to a heart that worships God and that serves God. But when sin broke the world, we internally now try to worship things, like our jobs and our trucks and our houses and our whatever. And these things lead us to a place of bitterness. And the, what the Bible says that when we find ourselves in a place where we are serving and worshiping the wrong things, there's a word for that. You may know? Idolatry. In the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments that God's going to give us here in a few weeks, we're going to say, he says, don't worship any other gods before me. 
Don't worship any idols before me. And a lot of us, if we're honest, we've let work or stuff or home or vacation or even good, I mean, these are all good things. Family, we've let, made them idols in our lives. Drink, food, all kinds of stuff. Sports, we make them idols. It's so easy to make idols. Notice what Tim Keller says. I love this quote. Tim Keller says this. He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll, find, uh, I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but maybe the best one is worship. So you've probably never thought about something that you serve being something you worship. But Tim Keller says they run parallel to each other. There's a connection there. So when you worship these things that aren't God, ultimately, it's going to make you bitter every single time. And I would guess that each of you in your life have found a time, and maybe you're there now, where you have bitterness towards something. You have bitterness towards your job. You have bitterness towards your house. You have bitterness towards this government. You have bitterness towards this country. You have bitterness towards a relationship. I think God wants bitterness to be our check engine light. So when bitterness comes in, and we begin to feel bitter. It's like that check engine light that pops up that says, what am I making an idol? What am I putting above God? I think a lot of us could probably look back over the last two years and find something for me, something that really showed it to me. And just to be fully transparent with you guys was August of 2020. If you guys, it feels like two decades ago, doesn't it? Like August of 2020, but really it wasn't that long ago. And I remember I found myself, I had gone up into the mountains that one day and I was going to try to, I was going to try to read and just pray and get my head right. And I just found myself just so angry and I was so mad and I was so bitter about just all that was going on in COVID, the, the families that were getting sick and losing loved ones, the fact that the church just didn't look anything like the church before. And I, and I started just stirring up in me these really negative emotions. I was in a terrible, unhealthy place. And I remember in that moment, I started to realize, man, I am bitter because I've made something else my main focus rather than God. I had made ministry success more high on the list than God. I had made fear and worry of what, this, of what security and comfort were going to happen to me and to my family and to you higher than my worship of God. And it led me to a place of bitterness. And thankfully, God showed that to me and revealed that to me, but it was ugly and it was messy. And I would guess that some of you have been there too. And this last two years revealed a lot to us about those things that we're putting ahead of God. And God says, when you feel that bitterness, that needs to be your check engine light. And that's why Jesus says the greatest command is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. To put God first and love your neighbor second because it redirects your heart to focus on him first and let all this other stuff not be nearly as important. So if you're in a place right now where you're seeing in your life you're bitter towards something, and maybe it's COVID, and maybe it's work, or maybe it's your spouse, but if you're bitter towards something, that is that, that warning sign God is trying to tell you that something has gotten in the way of who God's called you to be. See, here's the good news. Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, that when the sun sets you free, that you are going to be free indeed. 
that Jesus has set us free from all these things, that Jesus has set you and me free from having to try to find significance and value in, in all of these things around us and having to serve and worship all these things around us and to set our hearts only to serve and focus and worship on him. That's where true freedom is found. Jesus is talking to uh, the crowd in Matthew chapter 6, and he's saying, well, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear or what you're going to do and where you're going to live. He says, doesn't God clothe the lilies and doesn't God clothe the birds? And then he says this in Matthew 6, 33. He says, if you want to solve the problem of putting other things in front of God, what you have to do is you have to change the order. You have to seek first the kingdom of God. You focus on his righteousness and all of these other things will be added to you. All of these other things will fall into place. So I, I just want you guys to ask yourself, to be honest this week, like, where are you bitter? Like, what are you serving? What are you worshiping above God? Because that will show you what you need to adjust and change. The answer isn't changing our circumstances necessarily. The answer is changing the order and the things that we're seeking in life. Jesus always has to be first. Otherwise, we'll be bitter. So that's the first thing I think we see here in Exodus. But notice this, number two, about true freedom, this idea that true freedom isn't found in the absence of suffering. Like we think it is. We think if I could just get through this health diagnosis, if I can just get through this next treatment, if I can just get my debt paid off, if I can just get this new thing, then I'll be better. But true freedom is not found in an absence of suffering, but by seeking God's presence in the middle of it. See, notice, these Israelites are just terribly suffering, but notice what we read in Genesis chapter 2. Look at this, Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Look at verse 24, and God what? Heard. God heard the groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. See, this is a reminder here for us, a powerful truth. And no matter what you're going through, no matter what challenging situation life has upon you right now, God knows, and God hears, and God sees, and that God is walking with you through your suffering. God says true freedom isn't found in the absence of suffering. True freedom is found when you seek my presence in the midst of it. See, so often we find ourselves in places of suffering where we're hurting or feeling and we're just thinking like, why God? Why is this happening? What is going on in my life? Why are you allowing this? But I think God is saying, I allowed this into your life to draw you closer to me so you can see that I'm here with you every single time. That is the freedom, the true freedom that God offers. I love what Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, here on, on this earth, you're going to have trouble. Here you're going to have many trials. You're going to have many sorrows. And sometimes those trials are caused by, by our own sin and consequences. Sometimes those trials are caused and that sorrow is caused by somebody else. But here's Jesus' promise. But take heart because I have overcome the world. Take heart because I have made everything new. Some of you may know uh, the name uh, Johnny, Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, she, she was just an, an, amazing, an amazing Christian author and, and, and speaker. But what you maybe didn't know about her is that at age 17, um, Johnny dove into the Chesapeake Bay into a shallow area and ended up breaking her back. She ended up becoming a, quadri a quadriplegic, and she's never been able to feel her hands or her feet again. 
And shortly after this happened, and she's just living in this intense period of suffering. She was a Christian. She knew Jesus. She had said yes to Jesus, but it didn't change the fact that she was still walking through this really hard time in her life. And she found herself where she wanted to take, take her own life. But here was the problem. She couldn't move her hands to find a razor or to take pills. She was just stuck. She felt trapped. She was suffering completely. But during that time, Johnny says that she felt like God's Holy Spirit was moving and was teaching her that life isn't about your circumstances. Life isn't about working through your suffering necessarily to just to make everything get fixed. It was about seeing God's presence in the midst of your suffering, that God hears, that God knows, and that God will give you the strength that you need to get through that situation every single time. And she's gone on to write books, to, to speak, to encourage millions of people who are walking through hard seasons of suffering that Jesus is enough. And I want to share a quote. It's a long quote. But I, I thought it was a powerful quote. This is what uh, Johnny Erickson Tata says. She says this, that God uses our suffering to purge sin from our lives, to strengthen our commitment to him, to force us to depend on grace, to bind us together with other believers, to produce discernment, to foster sensitivity, to discipline our minds, to spend time, our time wisely, to stretch our hope, to cause us to know Christ better, making us long for truth, lead us to repentance of sin, to teach us to give thanks in time of, in time of sorrow, increase faith, and strengthen character. And this comes from a woman who spent the last 50 years living in a wheelchair, unable to move her arms or her legs. And she says, suffering teaches you to trust and to remember that Jesus is here for you every single time. See, there's a reality here, guys, that this world, there's suffering everywhere. We turn on the news, we see every, you know, every article on Apple News is about Ukraine right now. People suffering, they can't imagine that. We have families in our church, I just think of the, the, you know, so many families here in our church that we love so much that are walking through hard seasons of suffering. I think what Jesus wants you to see today is that God is with you, that God hears you, that God knows you. And then when you find yourself in that difficult place, what Jesus wants you to do is to remember, to remember him, to remember Jesus Christ. See, if you find yourself in a place right now where you're feeling alone, remember Jesus Christ. Because in 2 Timothy 1.17, it says that God didn't give us the spirit of fear, but of power, self, of power love, and self-control. If you're here right now and you feel alone, remember Jesus Christ, who in John 14.18 says that I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. If you're here right now in a moment you are hurting, remember Jesus Christ. And Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who is crushed in spirit. If you're here right now and you're feeling betrayed, remember Jesus Christ, who in Deuteronomy 31, 8 says that I will never leave you or forsake you. If you're here in a moment right now and you are feeling grief, remember Jesus Christ, who in Isaiah 34 says that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. If you're here and you feel forgotten, remember Jesus Christ. Because in 1 Peter 2.24, he says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live the righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And if you are here and you're feeling like there's no way out and you are just trapped and you are just enslaved, remember Jesus Christ, who in John 14.6 says that I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life and I will come back one day and get you again and take you home. My friends, wherever you are, Whatever you're walking through, however difficult the situation is, Jesus says, remember me. God says, remember Jesus Christ.